And we are live. What's up, guys? Welcome to Fed It, man. I am here with Angie. She's behind the scenes helping me out. Uh, say what's up to the camera real fast. Hi, guys. Uh, <laughs> here in Myra's chair again. Because he, now he likes to sit in that table. Yeah, she's the producer right now. So, um, guys, real quick, no intro on this one. Welcome. The channel now is called Fed Reacts. It's no longer called yes. Fed 1811. I went ahead and changed the name of the channel. Um, and you guys can see here the cool banner up top. Uh, we got all the federal agencies there. Uh, scroll back up real quick, and it shows, um, you know, we live stream, obviously, on Sundays at 9 p.m., and then we drop a video for you guys on Thursdays at 7 p.m. This video is going to come out on Thursday. Um, but, yeah, man, go make sure to subscribe, guys. It's called Fed Reacts. Now we're going to switch everything over to that because Fed 1811, let's be honest here, it's a little bit hard to find. And, you know, some of you guys don't know what 1811 is. 1811 is the job series code for special agent or criminal investigator in the U.S. government. But, obviously, that's jargon that most of y'all might not understand. But here's the channel, guys. Um, I went ahead and edited it for y'all as well. If we could scroll down real quick, Angie. Now you don't have to click playlist. Yep. So we got all videos, right, from recent to oldest. Then we have um, hip-hop cases, organized crime, and RICO cases that are involved with hip-hop. So all your favorite rapper cases, I cover them all, whether it's a conspiracy case and or just a one-off. Then we got the infamous serial killer, killer cases, right? You got your Jeffrey Dahmers, John Wayne Gacy, uh, the Zodiac Killer, the Night Stalker. Ted Bundy, etc. Then I got high-profile cases, right? BTK, all that stuff is there in the serial killer playlist. Then we got the high-profile cases, right? Courtney Clenny, the OnlyFans killer, Hush Puppy, Depstein, Ghislaine Maxwell, the Nashville shooter, Vibes Cartel, Breonna Taylor, all the high-profile cases. Crazy-ass Casey Anthony is there. Then we got terrorism, espionage, and national security cases. You're gonna, you guys are going to see a lot more of these cases coming um, once we start doing more declassified breakdowns from that documentary that you guys know that we watch. Um, you know, Osama bin Laden, the Merchant of Death, Victor Bout, 9-11, the Boston Marathon bombing, the D.C. snipers. We got all that stuff here for y'all. We cover a lot of espionage as well. Hit the tab arrow one more time, Angie, for them real fast on that playlist. And then, yeah, we got stuff like um, uh, the highest ranking CSI, uh, uh, Harold James Nicholson. Um, I got, tap it one more time, um, Angie. Okay. And then we got um, the Queen uh, uh, Anna Montez, right? She was giving secrets to the Cubans, the Hezbollah takedown. So if you guys like uh, terrorism, espionage, national security, spying, any of that stuff, go ahead and check out this playlist. And then we got non-hip hop organized crime right here, um, right? We talk about the paid in full story, uh, the uh, biggest dirty cop bust ever, Pablo Escobar. The Italian mafia is going to be here. The biggest heist in U.S. history for 18, uh, almost $19 million back in the early 90s. Uh, scroll through the pizza bomber case, which we had done. You got um, James Whitey Bulger, um, the Hitman book, right? And I, I talk about that as well on another podcast. And then obviously we got the, a whole 9-11 playlist below. And then below that is the Mafia series, which we're going to add this episode to it because today, guys, we're going to cover Al Capone and the outfit. So real quick, we tab over to that Wikipedia page real fast for the people, Angie. So here's Al Capone, guys, a famous mobster. Uh, Alfonso Gabriel Capone, uh, Capone, born January 17, 1899, died January 25, 1947, uh, sometimes known by the nickname Scarface. Yeah, not to be confused with Al Pacino, by the way, was an American <laughs> gangster and businessman who attended uh, attained notoriety during the Prohibition era, uh, era as the co-founder and boss of the Chicago Outfit. His seven-year crime reign as crime boss ended when he went to prison at the age of 33. And as you guys know, the Chicago Outfit was what the mafia called themselves out there in the Midwest. They did not call themselves the um, mafia or La Cosa Nostra as they did back over on the East Coast in New York, which is where Al Capone's originally from. But they call themselves the Chicago Outfit. So um, we're going to go ahead, guys, and react to this documentary here um, from the People uh, Biography, I think is named the YouTube channel here. Um, and, yeah, let's get right into it. Angie didn't want to use this documentary because the guy has an accent. <laughs> and it's hard for her to understand. But we got the subtitles for her. So, um, yeah, without further ado, let's get into it. September 1926. A hail of gunfire is heard on the street outside the headquarters of the Southside Gang in Cicero, Illinois. The machine guns ring out, and the Hawthorne Inn is peppered with 1,000 shots, each with the same target, infamous Southside gangster, Al Capone. But the mob boss escapes once more, whether guided by luck, security measures, or by his informants. Capone seems invincible, at least for now. Yeah, we're gonna fast forward. Thanks. The man known to history as Alphonse Gabriel Capone 
was born on the 17th of January, 1899, in Brooklyn, New York, in the United States of America. His father was Gabriel Capone, a barber who immigrated from Angry, a small village just outside of Naples in southern Italy, with his wife and Alphonse's mother, Pause. Teresa Capone. A pretty successful barber, by the way, guys. Um, He had his own shop. Um, and back then, barbers were very, very respected because a lot of them were literate. They were typically educated. So people would bring their letters there so that the barbers can read it to them because so many people were illiterate back then. Uh, and they also did bloodletting, which back then, you know, before refined medicine, that was a way to cure diseases. So um, Capone's father actually was was a fairly successful guy. He had to save up his money, obviously, um, but he ended up uh, opening up his own barbershop uh, out there in New York City. Uh, but yeah, let's get right back to it. Well, you have to remember that this was back in the, the era of the Great Depression. Yes. Here in the U.S. So many people didn't have jobs. You got to put the camera on yourself when you're talking. Right. Yeah. Stupid. Um, many people didn't have jobs and the um, unemployment rate was like 25% only in Brooklyn. Yeah, bro. Then. That's crazy. Can you guys imagine, uh, you know, one quarter of the population not working? That is wild. Mm -hmm. You know, they'll go, they go crazy if we get close to 10% unemployment rate. Imagine 25%. So, all right. Born Teresa Rayola, a seamstress who would have nine children with Gabrielle. The couple arrived in Brooklyn in 1893, having first immigrated to the port of Rijeka in Austria-Hungary, present-day Croatia, their first residence being 95 Navy Street in the Navy Yard area of downtown Brooklyn, before moving on to Park Slope in Brooklyn when Alphonse was 11. Alphonse Capone had eight brothers and sisters. Vincenzo, who became a Prohibition agent, changing his name to Richard Hart, Raphael James, known as Bottles, who would go on to control his brother's liquor empire, Salvatore, known as Frank, who would also work for his brother Al, our sister Ermina, who died at the age of one, Ermino, known as John, as well as Albert, Matthew, and a surviving sister, Mafalda Capone. When he started school, Alphonse showed promise as a student, bringing home excellent results to his proud parents, but he struggled keeping the rules of his strict Catholic background and would be expelled from school at the age of 14 for striking a female teacher in the face. And so, after this incident, his formal schooling stopped, but his education into the criminal world was just beginning. Surrounded by criminal influences, which seemed an everyday part of life in Brooklyn at the time, it was no surprise when Al then graduated to gang life, joining small-time gangs such as the Bowery Boys and Junior 40 Thieves, after which he joined the Brooklyn Rippers and eventually the Five Points Gang, the most powerful gang of the time, which was based in Lower Manhattan. By 1917, Al... And guys, we talk more about the Five Points Gang in a little bit more detail in the first episode of uh the mafia aka la costa nostra origins and everything else like that in the playlist so make sure to go back and watch that episode because it's going to explain a lot of the terminology here that you might not be familiar with while watching this one let's get back to it his employer and mentor was frankie yale who was a bootlegger and protection racketeer who demanded payments from local businesses in order to protect, or rather, not harm them. And from the funds from his protection operation, he opened up a bar called the Harvard Inn in Coney Island, where Al worked for Frankie as a bartender and doorman. But he was also learning knowledge, insights, and the workings of the criminal world from him at the same time. But also, the people who influenced him at this time were the more salubrious characters, such as gangster Johnny Torrio, who he came to admire and saw as a mentor. It was during this time that Al would gain the nickname he hated, Scarface, when he was working as a doorman at the Harvard Inn and got into a fight with a local gangster, one Frankie Galluccio, after inadvertently upsetting his vivacious and beautiful sister, Lena, by insulting her with a misjudged compliment about her posterior. <laughs> nice ass, next thing you know. What is that? Like, this is, this is what I mean, like, you know. This is what I mean that I don't understand this documentary. What is posterior? How can you po refer posterior? To it's it means her backside. Yeah, I know, I know. But like, how how can you refer to someone like backside? Like, well, he doesn't want to say. Uh, he said nice ass. <laughs> He's so saying late. it in a much nicer way, I guess. So <laughs> <laughs> Still got a slice because of it, but hey, it is what it is. And in the resulting drunken set to, Galluccio slashed Capone with a knife, which would leave a noticeable scar on the left side of his face for the rest of his life. 
Capone was always conscious of this scar and would have photographs taken from the other side to avoid it being seen. He also claimed it was a war wound gained from, quote, a German gunner in the Stop trenches the of World War I, although this was not true. Yeah. He no military service. Stop he had never served in the war. However, a more favored nickname for Al was one given to him by his closest friends, which was Snorky, a name for a smart dresser. And as well as this, other nicknames he was given included Big Al, Big Boy, and Public Enemy Number One. Following this incident with Frankie Galuccio, Capone was aching for revenge, although he was forced to reconcile with the local villain instead by other high-ranking gangsters, which he did. And Galuccio apologized for causing the scar, and Capone promised not to seek retribution Pause. against him. And I think uh, this got settled through Masseria, who, again, guys, watch that first episode. We talk about the origins of the Mafia, and we talk about the whole Casamilaris war uh, between uh, Masseria and the other guy, um, damn Sorry it. Maranzano. Maranzano, thank you very much. Um, so at the time, Masseria was one of the bosses, so Capone had to go through him to get this thing resolved, and him and that other guy ended up making up. So, um, so yeah, let's get back into it. Watch that first episode, guys. It's going to answer important. a lot of these questions. Yeah, it's very important so you can understand all this stuff in better context. And she stuck to, even when he became a mob boss himself. One reason Al decided to reconcile with Galuccio was that he recognized his own fault in the matter and saw that Galuccio was merely respecting and protecting his own family, and such a code would be a potent factor in how gangland families operated at the time. As family, respect and loyalty would be key to how these gangsters lived, despite operating outside of the law. In effect, they had their own moral law or code, which they saw as sacrosanct. Indeed, family was everything to many Italian-American gangsters of this time. And so when Al's girlfriend, May Josephine Conklin, gave birth to Al's son, Albert Francis Sonny Capone, in December 1918, the only thing to be done was for the pair to marry, which they did, only a few weeks later, on the 30th of December. May had been working in a local department store when she met Al, and when he married this Irish Catholic girl, he was only 19 and she was 21, and so because he was under the legal age required, he had to obtain the consent of his parents in writing in order to marry, but their marriage would be a very happy one, right up until the end. Shortly after his marriage to May, Al was asked by Johnny Torrio to make the move to Chicago, and Al was happy to oblige his friend, as well as make a new start for him and his family in the Windy City. And so in 1919, Capone left Brooklyn for Chicago and began working as a bouncer in a brothel where he contracted syphilis. And it appears with hindsight. Oh, man. <laughs> got that syph, got that, that SCI, man, from being in a whorehouse. Let's keep the going. treatment with a newly introduced drug called Salvasan could probably have cured him, but it seems that Al never sought treatment until it was too late. The reason for the now notorious surge in organized crime across the United States in the 1920s was in large part due to the continued demand across the country for alcohol, despite its sale and consumption being mostly illegal under the 18th Amendment to the United States Constitution of 1919, as well as the Prohibition or Volstead Act that was ratified in January of 1919. There had been a growing clamor for the banning of alcohol across the United States since the 1800s, especially amongst the more puritanical Protestant Christian members of the population, whose campaigns against the sale of liquor became more and more vocal and forthright as the decades haram! passed, and was led by particularly ardent temperance supporters, such as Carrie Nation, who became famous in 1900 for embarking on a divinely ordained rampage of violence across Kansas, in which she smashed up numerous bars and saloons with rocks and hatchets. Of course, you had to be a feminist. Of course, right? it had to be the feminist messing it up for everybody, man. <laughs> AKA wrong. But um, and we talk about this once again, guys. Don't want to rehash it again. But in the first episode, we talk about how much the prohibition era was huge and the mafia making money. Uh, if you were to use it in today's dollars, guys, these dudes were making billions. And a big part of the push for prohibition in the United States back then was women basically being battered by their drunken husbands. So yeah. uh, let's keep going. Claiming that God had told her to do so. Despite the more militant campaigners against alcohol, many of whom were women who had suffered at the hands of drunken husbands, Pause. a case for reform. That's why women deserve less, guys. 
Let's keep going. Okay, you just said <laughs> that after they book said. Book your stores. <laughs> book your stores right now, guys. You go just, get it. You just said that after they said, like, they got beaten by their drunken husband. Hey, right? man, they're Come ruining on. the booze for everybody, right? So, Come on. Yeah, yeah well, they, now they know. Well, congratulations. Now they created the mafia and made them billionaires in today's dollars. <laughs> grew and grew until eventually 46 states, most of whose politicians and officials were now under massive pressure to pass the 18th Amendment, eventually gave in meaning that by the beginning of the 1920s, the sale and consumption of the vast majority of alcoholic beverages was illegal in America. Nonetheless, many people, especially those of Italian and Irish background or heritage, had no intention of abstaining from alcohol consumption. And so it wasn't long before a massive black market industry sprang up across America, which played directly into the hands of the grateful Plus. underworld. That chick is pouring liquor, guys. Um, go, go hit the closed caption real quick there in the corner, um, Angie. See on the bottom right corner, just so we can read what it says there. Woman pouring liquor hidden in cane into drink. <laughs> Bro, if that is an alcoholism, I don't know what it is. That right there is that that that's a first. I've never seen that before. That lady was like, I got to get lit today, but today by any means necessary. Okay, I'm gonna walk correctly and I'm gonna get drunk at the same time as well. It's so funny that she's just violating the. Yeah, she's just like, hey, look at me. Yeah, and alcohol is extremely like prohibited. Yeah, and it probably tasted terrible too. Walking in a freaking cane, coming from a cane. Yeah. God damn. All right, hit the close, increasingly hit those close caption again. Made a fortune from shipping and selling liquor across the country in defiance of prohibition. Meanwhile, life for the Capone family in Chicago was going well, and in 1923, L purchased a small house at 7244 South Prairie Avenue in Park Manor on the south side of the city for $5,500. Pause. Um, Angie, yeah. on another screen, go ahead and Google that real quick, that address. I want to yeah, see yeah. what that looks like now. And he bought that for five. Oh, the address? Yeah. It, it, rewind it like real fast, like five seconds. Just tap. Yep. He purchased a small house at seven. Uh, at seven Two four, I think he means seven two four. Hit hit play yeah. again. Let's see here. In Park Manor on the south side no, of the city. Hit, hit yeah, hit the arrow back one more time. One more time. All right, go ahead. Argo was going well, and in 1923, L purchased a small house at seven two four four South Prairie Avenue in Park. Okay, seven two four four South Prairie Avenue, part um, in uh, Chicago. So just put that in Google. Keep playing. But it's yeah. manor on then, the south uh, side of the city for $5,500 and began making his name as a boxing promoter. But this was merely a cover, as in reality, he was working for a crime organization headed by Johnny Torrio, who in turn had taken over from Chicago crime boss James Big Jim Colosimo. At that time, at the height of the Prohibition era, the Chicago Plus. Outfit, or South Side Gang, as it was and just so you guys know, um, 5500 back in that time was about $97,572 today. Okay, so almost 100 grand. Uh 5500 back then. I was looking that as well. <laughs> yeah, and then what what's did you find the address? No, I'm looking for it. Yeah, 7244 uh South, I think Prairie it was. South it's also Prairie, known South Prairie Avenue. Yeah, in yeah. Chicago. In Park Manor. Yeah, I want to see. I want to see what that looks like now. Okay. But yeah, keep going. Yeah. Was a growing illicit organization consisting of illegal stills and breweries and a transport network that reached Canada, protected through bribes by politicians as well as law enforcement agencies. As well as this, the racket was also grown through fear, with businesses who refused to buy the illicit liquor being blown up. And it is thought that as many as 100 people could have been killed in such bombings during the 1920s. Pause. Capone had a punch. That just goes to show, guys, how they control things. The fact that they were able to blow people up that weren't buying their liquor or protested their liquor lets you know that the power uh, that the Chicago outfit had back then. Um, also, uh, as you guys have realized now from us covering all these crime families, um, bribery, once again, being one of the you know bread and butters of the La Cosa Nostra, because for them to be able to bribe politicians, that's how they're able to get their rackets done without too much impedance, right? Um, if you're going to go ahead and be selling liquor and doing illegal gambling dens and betting on horses and, you know, killing people and all this other stuff, well, you're going to need some politicians in your back pocket to evade detection from law enforcement. Okay, here you go. This is what it looks like now? Yeah. Oh, okay. Worth uh, $334,000. So, okay. All right. Um, so, it so uh, appreciated quite a bit of value. <laughs> um so that's what his house looked. It probably was different back then. 
Because this house was built when? When was this house built? Probably, yeah. Scroll down. It'll tell you what year it was built. Um, keep going. Keep going. This is on Redfin. Uh, oh, year built, 1915. So that's the same house. Because he bought it in 1923, right? Yeah. Yeah. Same house. Wow. That's crazy, guys. This is Al Capone's old crib. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised it's not worth uh, It's not worth more. Oh, but, who knows? Nobody, nobody knows that Al Capone lived there. Yeah. All nobody right. cares. Cool enough. Yeah, they don't even know, probably. Let's get back to it. Shaw for the high life. Wearing expensive, bespoke suits, smoking cigars, and eating only the best food. He also had a liking for female company, and was also known to wear expensive, showy Pause. jewelry. Well, that's why I ended up with syphilis. Definitely likes that female company. All right, let's keep going. And he reveled in the attention he received, such as being cheered at his arrival at ball games, and felt he was a modern-day Robin Hood, making charitable donations from his vast illicit wealth. But when questioned about his activities and lifestyle, his falsely humble response might be, quote, I am just a businessman giving the people what they want, or all I do is satisfy a public demand. It seems he had <laughs> become booze. a celebrity before celebrity had been invented. Nonetheless, in 1923, a change had come about in the form of political reform. As in Chicago, the reformist William Emmett Deva was appointed mayor, and to avoid potential interference and Plus. investigation... Oh, this is crazy, guys, what they, what they did to make sure this guy gets elected. Check this out. This. Capone and Torrio decided to move their base of operations to the Chicago suburbs and the town of Cicero, Illinois. And so Al Capone based himself and the rest of the Southside gang there, from where he grew the operation. They set up illicit brothels, speakeasies, and gambling dens, and expanded the liquor operation to supply all of Cicero's saloons, even using bribery and intimidation to take over local town elections, such as the 1924 Cicero municipal elections. And this veneer of respectability made it difficult for the Northside gang to get to him, and was an opportunity for Capone to not only protect himself from rival gangs who sought to take over his rum-running monopoly, but also prevent the election of more reformist politicians. The incumbent mayor of Cicero was the corrupt Republican Joseph Z. Klanner, who, along with his bipartisan administration, had received hardly any opposition in the elections. Running Cicero by then for three consecutive terms, the corrupt administration had been controlled by the Southside gang, with the help of Al's brother, Salvatore Capone, better known as Frank. But in 1924, the Democratic Party decided it would mount a challenge and run its own candidates in the election mounting a serious challenge to the status quo, with their threat to clean up the town. The 1st of April 1924 was the date set for the election, but Klanner had decided he needed help to secure a win, and so he offered the Chicago outfit an effective immunity from prosecution in Cicero. Capone and his cronies were only too happy to oblige, and brought in 200 men, members of his own gang, plus members from other allied gangs, and the contingent gathered included Capone's brothers Frank and Ralph, as well as his cousin Charles Fischetti. The gang would begin a targeted campaign of stabbings, shootings, kidnappings, and general intimidation to make sure that Klenner was elected mayor once again. And to achieve that, they started on the 31st of May, the eve of the election, with the Democratic nominee for town clerk, William K. Plowm, who had his face beaten and his offices ransacked. As well as this, his... <laughs> yeah, that's how you that's how you do democracy, baby. Don DeMarco Plowm, the part of his people. Don DeMarco That's how you do it, baby. Welcome to Chicago. Let's keep going. Life was thrown much. against a wall. The terror continued the following day, the 1st of April, Election Day, when the voters faced submachine guns and sawn-off shotguns at the polling booths to ensure that their votes were cast for Klanner. And when their votes were for him, they were allowed to vote multiple times, but those who dared to resist their persuasion were either prevented from voting or beaten. As well as this, cars were roaming the streets, filled with gunmen, and several individuals were targeted, such as Democrat Rudolph Hurt, who was standing for mayor, whose campaign headquarters was sprayed with gunfire, and his fellow Democrat, the challenger for city clerk, was pistol-whipped in front of his family, as well as his supporters. And then, in the campaign headquarters of another opponent, Frank Capone himself <laughs> beat up several campaign officials and ransacked the office. He was gonna make sure... 
he, this guy was gonna win. Yeah, by any means. By any means necessary, man. He smacks the crap out of him, out of his opponents, just like forget about it. Don't say nothing to the police, or else we coming back for you, man. Let's keep going. The chaos continued, with polling stations being raided and ballots snatched from voters' hands. Other voters were even shot, or stabbed, or beaten by so-called sluggers in the street, whilst one campaign official called Joseph Price was tied up and gagged before being battered by the gangsters. Another Democratic official, named Stanley Stankovich, was taken to a Chicago basement, blindfolded, and kept there until after the polling stations had closed to prevent him from voting. Up to 20 others were chained to posts and pipes in the basement of a plumbing store to prevent them voting, and a police officer was beaten after being disarmed of his gun. One Democrat, a campaigner named Michael Gavin, was shot in both of his legs and kept with eight other campaign workers in the basement of a mob-owned Chicago hotel to prevent them voting. And when a call from help from the campaigners finally reached Cook County Judge Edmund K. Jarecki late that afternoon, he sent 70 Chicago police officers, made up of five squads of detectives and nine squads of police in vehicles, to help subdue the chaos and confusion in Cicero. The police response included a squad car carrying both uniformed police and detectives, who spotted Al, his brother Frank Capone, as well as henchmen Dave Hedlin and Charles Fischetti. And straight away, the policemen jumped out of the car with drawn weapons, and a gun battle ensued between the men, in which Frank Capone was shot and killed, and Hedlin was wounded. But Al Capone escaped, as did Fischetti, who later surrendered himself. Capone gave his brother a funeral that was lavish and opulent. The flowers provided by local bootlegger and florist, Dino Banyan, cost $20,000 alone, and the mourners wailed for the loss of one so young. But observing from a distance were the very same police officers who had shot and killed Frank Capone, Pause. there possibly to elicit a reaction. Just so you guys know, $20,000 back then was worth about $354,000 today, man. But basically three hundred fifty-five k is what it would have cost to run that, have that funeral in today's dollars. Wild. How much? How much? 355,000. Wow. Yep. <laughs> so a quarter million. Yeah, over a quarter million. That's 100k crazy. over. Yep, that's an expensive uh, funeral, man. It's very expensive. From the mob boss, but it didn't come, at least not at the funeral. You know, if you think about it, it cost him more than his house. Yeah, cost him way more than his house. <laughs> An occupational hazard for Capone in his time as boss of the mob in Cicero was the many attempts on his own life from other gang members, as well as the threat of arrest at any time. His bribery and corruption of local politicians safeguarded him to an extent that he and his entourage were still vulnerable. And so Al was very security conscious as a result. Indeed, in the early 20s, Capone's driver was found tortured and murdered, and Jaime Weiss narrowly escaped from an attempt on his life in the Chicago Loop the business district of downtown Chicago. Jakes. Capone's friend, Johnny Torrio, had taken over from Colosimo after he was killed on the 11th of May 1920. His was a murder, which many believed at the time Capone was involved with. But in his new role, Capone put his New York nous to good use by negotiating in gang war disagreements and creating treaties between the various groups, becoming known as an arbitrator of sorts. Furthermore, the deals were made so that Torrio this is something that Lucky Luciano is very good at as well. Whenever you're the boss, you got a big target on your back. And one of the ways to keep yourself alive a lot of times, guys, is to be a mediator and advocate for peace so that they don't want to kill you. So um, it was very good that uh, Capone was able to, to do this, and it probably extended his life significantly. Well, back then didn't exist the, the commission, or, or did it? It, it did exist, but it was a New York. It was uh, yes, it did exist. It did exist, but yes. most of the families were concentrated in New York. They were a lot more um, uh, organized in New York than they were in Chicago, because yeah, there were more crime families in New York. So they had to work. They had to work together. Versus in Chicago, it was a little bit more wild, which is why they were doing the crazy stuff that they were doing, beating up you know campaign uh, can candidates and stuff like that. Well, so. I think it's someone else. Well, put the like, camera on yourself. <laughs> I think it's someone else. Stupid well, like, old. Yeah, okay. I think it's someone as well, like all the families, because uh, whenever they will have like a a problem between the mafias, uh, they will have to call like all the families into a commission, even the Pennsylvania ones, you know? 
Yes, yes, yes. And that was like for very big disputes that they would have these commission meetings. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, out there in Chicago, they were kind of on their own. So it's good that Capone took a more active step to be a mediator. But let's get back to it. Those Italian organized crime group would remain the biggest in the city. And one of the most prominent of the deals that Capone brokered was a deal over the control of territory between the infamous Northside Gang and the Jenner Brothers. The Jenner brothers were allied with Torrio, as was Dino Banyan, head of the Northside Gang, who were a group of mixed ethnicity criminals. And the brothers had begun selling cheap booze to O'Banyan's customers. And not only did Torrio seem to ignore what was going on, he also either sanctioned or arranged himself for the murder of O'Banyan at his flower shop, which was the legal front to his own illicit operations on the 10th of November 1924, where he was shot whilst clipping chrysanthemums by Brooklyn crime boss Frankie Yale and Jenna gunman Albert Anselmi and John Scalise. O'Banyan had been known for his bizarre behavior, a childlike wide grin, and backslapping anyone new he met. He had gunned down a man in front of crowds for no good reason, and killed a man he met at Al's club, the Four Deuces, bringing unwanted attention to the gangsters. But when he tricked Torrio into being present at his brewery, when he knew a raid was about to occur, which ended in Torrio's arrest, O'Banyan's boasting of what he had done sealed his fate. This resulted in a change of the hierarchy of the Northside Gang, and it was now headed by Jaime Weiss, with the help of his second-in-commands, Vincent Drucki and Bugs Moran. And as O'Banion had been a good friend of Jaime Weiss, the Northsiders had only one thing on their mind by this point, and that was revenge. For this was just the beginning of what would be a five-year gang war between the two factions. And so, in January 1925, it came as no surprise when first Capone was ambushed, leaving him unharmed but shaken up by the experience. And then only 12 days later, Torrio himself was shot when returning from a shopping trip, the experience leaving him deeply affected. He decided to effectively resign, handing control of the Chicago outfit, as it was known, to Capone at the age of only 26. Oh, shit. There was a further so attack from the North... So just so you guys know, that's the equivalent to being the, the boss. Like, uh, as you guys know, there was a structure in New York where you had the boss, the consigliere, mm -hmm. the underboss, and underneath them is a set the of capos, soldier. and then under them are the soldiers who were all the made guys. So now Capone effectively owned and ran Chicago, which as a top guy, now you got an even bigger target on your back. But he already had a target on his back before. Now he's got an even bigger one. You know, um, hang on, put the camera. Yeah. Um, I've read somewhere that Al Capone, along with Michael Franchisi, was were were the ones like biggest most mobsters that will make the the highest amount in the whole mafia history. Yes, they were some of the biggest earners for sure. Yeah, and well, I read somewhere that Al Capone actually had like a made like a thousand, a hundred thousand million dollars, just like a hundred thousand million. That doesn't make 100, sense. A hundred thousand. Hundred thousand dollars. No, no, no. Million. A hundred million. Mm -hmm. He had made a hundred million. Yeah. Probably, yeah. If you took the money he made back then, yeah, he probably made a hundred million in today's dollars for sure. May, may, I mean, it was prohibition and he ran it in Chicago. So, may, yeah, maybe he did make it a hundred million back then, which would be worth like a billion dollars nowadays. Yeah, that's what I'm So, saying. yeah, I wouldn't be surprised because, dude, prohibition, these guys made a killing off of prohibition. So, uh, people still wanted to drink. Yeah, they still were making like loads of money. Yeah. All right, let's get back to it. Side gang on the 20th of September 1926, when they attempted to draw Capone to the window of his Hawthorne Inn headquarters, several gunmen opened fire on the first floor of the restaurant with Thompson submachine guns firing over 1,000 shots. But Capone was unharmed and called for a truce, followed by negotiations which took place but achieved nothing. Only three weeks after this, the head of the Northside Gang, Jaime Weiss, was killed by the Southside Gang, outside the flower shop that had been owned by Dino Banyan, which now acted as the Northside headquarters of the gang. And in January 1927, the owner of Hawthorne's restaurant, who was a good friend of Capone's, was killed in retaliation by Bugs Moran and Drukey after being kidnapped by them. 
The continuation of the turf wars prompted a further security measure, when Capone began spending more time away from Chicago, and it was not unusual for the whole Capone entourage to turn up at a Chicago train station and hire a complete Pullman sleeper car to take them on various breaks to places such as Little Rock, Hot Springs, Kansas City, Omaha, or Cleveland for a week in a luxurious hotel, which they booked using false names. As a more permanent retreat, Capone purchased a 14-room mansion in 1928, and it is said that Capone paid $40,000 to August Bush, a beer magnate from Missouri, for this retreat at 93 Palm Avenue on Palm Island in Biscayne Bay, Miami, Florida. But the house oh, would not okay. be registered in his name, neither would any other Let's property. Get, uh, in fact, he didn't boss, even boss. have a bank. Let's get that address uh, on okay. the, on the uh, Google real quick. Um, in Miami, and it's forty thousand dollars in nineteen. This so, is nineteen twenty-four now. Yeah. Uh, so let's go ahead and. So it's uh the ninety-three. Hang on, let me hear the guy speaking because. Yeah. Mr. August Bush, a beer magnate from Missouri, for this retreat at ninety-three Palm Avenue. Okay, ninety-three Palm, Palm Avenue, Avenue, Miami, Florida. Well, Where on wait, no, 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 ninety-three Palm Avenue. And then he says on Biscayne, go ahead. Hit, uh, on Palm Island, in Biscayne Bay, Miami. Okay, Biscayne Bay. Oh, uh, in Biscayne Bay. Okay, Palm Avenue on Palm Island. Okay, so that's that's up uh, Palm Beach. That's not that's not Miami, Florida, probably. Okay. Palm Island. That's in yeah. Palm Island, I think, Biscayne is up. Biscayne Bay. Yeah, in Biscayne Bay. It can be Miami. Biscayne. No, no. Like another around there. Biscayne is large. Yeah, Biscayne is in. Yeah, Biscayne goes all the way up to West Palm Beach, though. Mm -hmm. So. What I think is it's it's Palm ninety three Palm Avenue, in Palm pa Bay, in, in Palm, Palm Island, in Palm Island. Yeah, yeah, that's the address. Yeah, Palm uh, Palm Island is. You the, want me is, to put it up? Ah, uh, yeah, put it up. Let's see what it looks like nowadays. Okay, let me let me. Hang on. Florida, but the house would not be registered in his name. Neither would any other property. In fact, he didn't even have a bank account. But instead, he used Western Union for cash deliveries. Nonetheless, he was a prolific Plus. contributor to charity. Real quick, forty thousand dollars back then, guys, was worth seven hundred nine thousand dollars today. So about seven hundred ten thousand. So quite a bit of money back then. Let's keep how going. Much, how much? Sorry, I didn't it, hear you. It was uh, forty thousand dollars back then. Was worth about seven hundred ten thousand dollars today. Seven hundred. It's one hundred ten thousand. Yep. What? Yeah, yeah. He big money man. The, the, all that booze he was selling, he didn't care. Oh my god. Plus, you can't put a price on your safety. You had to get the hell out of Chicago. Yeah. All right, but let me know when you have that idea. And even helped set up a soup kitchen in Chicago during the Depression. All moves intended to bolster his popularity with the common people. During his life, Capone used political alliances to his advantage. For example, he supported William Hale Thompson with a donation of $250,000 when the Republican candidate for the 1920... Hang on. I know this. Has, this is the, uh, it says in here that it's uh, Capone is mentioned. Oh, it does say that? Yeah. Pull it up it's on screen. It's in Miami Beach. Pull it up. Uh, Here. Look at this. Does it have a, uh, does it have um, like a, like a Google Maps? So you can like look yeah, at it? Yeah, yeah. Well, it says that it's this one. Okay. So that's it. Holy, look at that. <laughs> they call it Al Capone's Mansion. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. It's in, it's in Miami Beach. Apparently. Okay. That's why they say Bitcoin Bay. I understand now. Well, it's in here. Okay, so it's behind yeah, Star see, Island. You can see. I knew. I knew. I I heard the the address somewhere because you can see it from. You can take like a boat from the Biscayne, the Bayside uh, Bay. You know where the marketplace is. Yes. You can take a boat, and they can take. And you can see to it. This place. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Hit dismiss. By the way, right there. Just hit dismiss. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Pretty cool. <laughs> 27 mayoral election for Chicago hinted in his campaign that he would allow illegal drinking saloons to be reopened, which would obviously be a major opportunity for Capone's illegal bootlegging business to thrive. After this, Thompson beat his reformist rival, William Emmett Deaver, and became mayor of Chicago in 1927, and continued to receive the support of Capone, which allowed their mutually profitable relationship to continue right up until 1929, when an event, which later became known as the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, was to crack Capone's thin veneer of legitimacy altogether, and would also endanger the informal immunity from police prosecution he had enjoyed through his alliance with Thompson. 
Nevertheless, Bugs Moran was a thorn in the side of Capone, and a hated enemy, and now leader of the Northside gang, following the death of Jaime Vice. And there was no love lost between them, from either side, because as well as being competition for each other's bootlegging operations, Moran disliked the fact that Capone was involved in prostitution rackets, as it was against his Catholic principles. And so, the continuing tit-for-tat killings and violence came to a head on the morning of Thursday the 14th of February 1929, the day of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Oh boy. Capone had hatched a plan against Moran by renting an apartment across the road from Moran's headquarters and watching the movements of his men. Capone arranged for a phone call on the 13th, which told Pugs there was to be a delivery of whiskey from Detroit the following day at a bargain price. So he agreed and asked for the delivery at 10.30 the next morning at the SMC Cartage Company on North Clark Street, where his bootleg operation vehicles were kept. But when the truck arrived, Capone had arranged for a fake police raid to take place by two gunmen dressed in plain clothes and two dressed as Chicago police officers who lined up seven of Bugs Moran's men against a wall, supposedly to search them. But when a signal was given, the men were mown down in cold blood That's by the bitch. accomplices' machine guns and shotguns. Bugs himself escaped the attack, having slept in that morning, despite having been the main target Plus. of the hit. But the I guess that's how you get rid of your ops right there, man. Holy. Wow. Let's go ahead. The fallout of the hit for Capone, especially when the photographs of the slain victims were published, was a decline in his image and standing with the public. And it also earned him the new nickname, Public Enemy Number One, and led to questions about the appropriateness of his close ties with Thompson, the mayor of Chicago. The emergency services did not arrive promptly at the scene due to neighbors thinking that the police were already in attendance because of the presence of two men dressed as police officers. And once they did arrive, six of the men were already dead. The one surviving man, Frank Gusenberg, was taken to hospital, refusing to identify his killers so as to keep the gangster's code. But he later died. Bugs Moran's reaction to the complete carnage of the attack was to break the gangster's code himself and inform the police that it was Capone who arranged the attack. This resulted in a summons to court for Capone to answer charges, but he denied all responsibility and claimed he was sick and so could not attend court. This happened twice and eventually the charges were dropped. It seems his tactics had worked. Al Capone was known as someone who let others do his dirty work for him, but one story persists, which suggests that this wasn't always true. This story starts with a dinner and a night of drinking for several of Capone's men, including Scalisi, Anselmi, and Giunta, three men who Capone believed had been conspiring against him with another gangster. And the story goes that Capone himself beat the men about the head with a baseball bat before ordering his men to shoot them. But some historians have questioned the veracity of this story. Although it was reported in the newspapers at the time, and one associate of Capone's claimed to have witnessed both the planning of the attack and the incident itself. During 1929, attempts to bring public enemy number one to justice were intensified. And on the 27th of March, 1929, FBI agents arrested Capone as he left a courtroom. After testifying to a grand jury investigating prohibition law violations, the charge they brought was the feigning of illness, which he'd used to avoid earlier prosecution. And then on the 16th of May, 19... They basically got him for faking uh, being sick, uh, which is hilarious. But um, but yeah, I mean, guys, it was really hard for them to get Al Capone on anything, and you're going to see what they eventually did get him on. Capone was arrested again, when in Philadelphia, on a charge of carrying a concealed weapon, this time, he was sent to trial and found guilty and received a sentence of one year in prison. I think by this time he was uh, 33 years old. Yeah. Well, yeah. Was he? No. Well, didn't they say they arrested him at 29? Mm, the first time? No. I think they said he he died when he was 33. He died when he was 33? Yeah, okay. he died when he was 33. I think you got it confused. Okay, my bad. All right, let's keep going. On the 8th of August, 1929, Capone was sent to Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia, and he was released in March 1930. But in April 1930, Capone was next arrested on vagrancy charges whilst visiting Miami Beach, as the governor had ordered that he should be expelled from the state. And during his arrest, Capone claimed that the police had threatened his family with arrest and refused him food and water. He was then further charged with... Yeah, he was 31. 
by this amount, like 1930. Yeah, because he was born in 1899. So yeah, so yeah, yeah, that makes sense. All right. Perjury for making these claims, but after a three-day trial in July, he was found not guilty. Then in September, a court judge issued a warrant for Capone's arrest on charges of vagrancy once again, and the judge then stood against Thompson in the Republican primary election, making good use of the publicity he had stirred up to foster votes. And in February 1931, Capone faced another trial, this time on the charge of contempt of court due to his illness claims. And Judge James <laughs> Herbert... Do you imagine that playing hooky from court and they just, they're just trying to get him on any bullshit charge you guys could see here? Because he's making too much money and he's beating some of these cases or he's getting no time. So they're just yeah. trying to get anything to stick at this point. Yeah. It's incredible how these guys, like, uh, the, power, the more powerful they get, they they can get ahead of and, like, not get charged with anything. Yeah, especially like, back then. Yeah, exactly. Because these, well, these guys were the equivalent of billionaires today, back then. You know, they were multimillionaires back then, so they were billionaires in today's well, dollars. I would say they were more than millionaires. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were like billionaires in today's dollars. These guys will rent, like, will have power over the the government. Yeah, and everything, yeah, they were like Elon Musk, but like criminals. Yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. Anderson made a point of questioning further the testimony of Capone's doctor, thus aiding the prosecutor, and Capone was sentenced to six months in prison, but remained free for the time being, as he had appealed the decision. The law was trying every which way to bring Capone to justice, when Assistant Attorney General Mabel Walker Willebrand realized that there may be another way. She saw that the luxurious lifestyles of the mobsters must be backed up by a substantial income, yet she recognized that they never filed income tax returns. And so Mabel came up with the idea of prosecuting the gangsters for tax evasion. Oh, that man. way, they could be convicted without Damn. the very difficult-to-acquire testimony of their other illegal deeds and violent crimes. Pause. And so, Keep in mind, guys, recall laws were not in place, so they couldn't get people to testify against these guys because they were scared. So they weren't able to prosecute them as an organization. So how do they do it? Well, well you guys aren't paying your taxes. Yeah. Let's keep going. She tried out this approach in the case of United States versus Manly Sullivan, an illegal bootlegger, and the outcome of the case was that Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. found that illegally earned income should be subject to income tax, and the plea of the Fifth Amendment to protect criminals from reporting illegal income was invalid. After this, the Internal Revenue Service, or IRS, chose Frank J. Wilson to investigate Capone's tax matters, but also his lawyers had been ordered by Capone to get his tax position into good order, and so they declared income that was taxable for 1928 and 1929 of $100,000 for each year. And as he wow. hadn't paid tax on that amount... Okay, you're gonna get that $100,000? $100, yeah, that, that's what they were saying that he was supposed to be making that he didn't claim. Okay. So... All right, I'll, I'll count that right here. Go ahead, keep going. The declaration was in effect an admission of guilt. And so on the 13th of March, 1931, Capone was charged with income tax evasion for the year of 1924. And then on the 5th of June, Capone was indicted by a federal grand jury yes. to stand trial. $100,000 back in 1931 is the equivalent to $1,995,000. Uh, basically, yeah, almost $2 million. Almost $2 million. Keep going. Jesus. Well, on 22 counts of income tax evasion from 1925 to 1929, and he was at that point released on bail of $50,000. A week after this, Elliot Ness and his team were to become involved with the court process, and their evidence led to Capone's indictment on 5,000 violations of the Volstead Act, the act which detailed the prohibition laws. Indeed, Elliot Ness is one of the names inextricably linked to Al Capone. He was an American prohibition agent in Chicago, leader of his team of reliable, whiter-than-white law enforcement agents known as the Untouchables. And with a reputation as an incorruptible, even zealous, upholder of the law, he seemed to be untempted by the bribes and unaffected by the intimidation that the Chicago outfit attempted to buy him with. And you could even say he was the exact opposite of Al Capone. Ness was a member of the U.S. Treasury Department, which he joined in 1926, working within the Bureau of Prohibition in Chicago. And so Ness was part of the team whose job it was to take down Al Capone by investigating his illegal bootlegging activities and gathering evidence of conspiracy to violate the National Prohibition or Volstead Act. 
In addition, Ness instigated raids of Capone's illegal stills and breweries, destroying his supply chain and leading to an estimated loss of $9 million in income for Capone by the end of their investigations, getting much of their information through wiretaps on phone lines. The operation headed by Ness caused major financial damage and disruption to Capone's operation and collected evidence for the 5,000 violations of the Volstead Act that he would be tried on. On the 16th of June 1931, Capone stood before Judge James Herbert Wilkerson, the same judge who had convicted Capone's brother Ralph for tax evasion in 1930 and imprisoned him for three years. This time, Al Capone pled guilty to income tax evasion and also to the 5,000 violations of the Volstead Act as part of a plea bargain deal in which he agreed to plead guilty in return for a sentence of two and a half years. However, when it came to sentencing, Judge Wilkerson refused to honor the plea bargain. And on the 30th of July, 1931, Capone's counsel retracted the guilty pleas, and an argument was made that a lawyer could not confess for his client, arguing that the lawyers admitted the income and not Capone. But Judge Wilkerson overruled the objection on the grounds that any statement Pause. made to a government... That judge was mad as hell, bro. How you not gonna, how you going to accept... Like withdraw the guilty uh, plea and be like, no, I'm not giving them two and a half years. They really want a Capone in jail, man. Wow. Yeah. Let's keep going. The official was done at the person's own risk. And so Judge Wilkerson ruled that the letter to federal authorities admitting income could be admitted into evidence by Capone's lawyer. Wilkerson subsequently tried Capone on the income tax evasion charges alone, deeming them to take precedence over the Vorstead Act prohibition-based charges. And the lawyers acting for Capone had only hours to prepare for the trial, as they had been relying on the judge accepting the plea bargain deal, and came up with the defense that all his income had been lost because of his gambling habit. Furthermore, the defense was weak, to say the least. Not only were gambling losses only admissible as a deduction from gambling winnings, but Capone's expenses showed that money must have been available to pay for them, and to an extent that was far greater than that which they had claimed. The extent of Capone's spending was outlined in court in great detail, and the charge was that $215,000 in taxes had been evaded on a gross income of $1,038,654 over a five-year period. And so, on the 31st of October 1931, Al Capone was convicted on three counts of income tax evasion. And a week later, he received his sentence, which was to be 11 years in federal prison, and a fine of $50,000 plus $7,692 in costs. As well as this, he would also be liable for the $215,000 back taxes plus interest. But the sentence for contempt of court would be served concurrently. Capone's response. Just to put things in perspective for you guys, because you made way more money than that, but the government was able to kind of prove, like, oh, you made this much money, which is a little, uh, like, or, you know, uh, one point something million. But I'm just going to say, to put things in perspective, $1 million back then was about $20 million today, guys. 20 so, million. $20 million, yep. Yeah, that's inflation for you. So, let's get back to it. <laughs> was to hire a team of tax expert lawyers from Washington and they filed a writ of habeas corpus, which meant that the detainee had to be brought to court to investigate if the detention was lawful. The grounds they used for their argument was a Supreme Court ruling, which had pronounced that tax evasion was not fraud, which would mean that the time limit for the prosecution of tax evasion might have expired on some of the tax years he was convicted for. But the judge decided that the time Capone had spent in Miami should be deducted from the age of the offenses making the argument invalid, and thus denying the appeal for both the conviction and the sentence. Following the failed appeal, Capone was sent to Atlanta U.S. Penitentiary on the 3rd of May 1932, at the age of 33. Moreover, Elliot Ness was among the federal agents who accompanied Capone from the Cook County Jail to the penitentiary. And this was the only time that the two men were known to have actually met in person. And when Capone arrived there, he weighed 250 pounds. And at the medical, he was diagnosed with both syphilis and gonorrhea, as well as a perforated nasal septum due to excessive cocaine use. In addition, he was also suffering from withdrawal symptoms from cocaine, to which he was addicted. Whilst in Atlanta, 
Capone was competent in his job of stitching soles onto shoes, but he was not popular with fellow inmates, who felt he was both a weak personality, unable to deal with the bullying the other inmates carried out, and also was receiving special treatment. This idea arose from the protection he was offered by his cellmate, Red Rudensky, a seasoned criminal who was associated with the Southside gang. And so, with the hatred he was facing from other inmates, the incoherence of the letters he was writing home, as well as Red Rudensky's concerns that he would have a breakdown, it was decided that Capone would be moved to the newly opened Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary off the coast of San Francisco. In August 1934, his new address was to be cell 181. In Alcatraz on the 23rd of June 1936, Capone was attacked in the laundry area by fellow inmate James Critterton Lucas, who was serving a life sentence for bank robbery. Lucas stabbed Capone in the back with a pair of scissors, stolen from the prison barber, but Capone was only superficially wounded, and so he was able to throw Lucas against a wall in retaliation. After the attack, Lucas was sent into solitary confinement as a punishment. During his time at Alcatraz, Capone's syphilis worsened, affecting his mental faculties, until in February 1938, he was diagnosed formally with syphilis of the brain. And so the final year of his Alcatraz sentence was spent in the hospital ward of the prison, where he was both disorientated and confused. And so, when he was released from Alcatraz on the 6th of January 1939, he was immediately transferred to the Federal Correctional Institution on Terminal Island in California to fulfill his sentence for contempt of court. And as well as this, he was given parole on the 16th of November 1939, when his wife May appealed to the court on the grounds of his reduced mental capacity. The effect of Capone's imprisonment was portrayed by those involved in it as reducing the operation of organized crime carried out by the Southside mob, but in reality, it only called for a temporary change of leader, who was found in Frank Nitti, at least when he was released from prison in March 1932, having served a sentence for tax evasion himself. In reality, the Chicago outfit continued their crime business at a more discreet level than when Capone had been in charge. They remained low-profile, reducing the killings that had been a mark of Capone's time in charge. And this low profile continued once Prohibition was abolished, as the gangsters who replaced Capone were wary of going the same way he had. The low profile meant that it was unclear to many who was actually in control of the organization and who was a mere figurehead. No, which is what you want. They operated way more surreptitiously once Capone, uh, you know, left yeah. leadership. Frontman, but organized crime continued with prostitution, gambling, loan sharking, and labor union racketeering without serious investigations. And into the late 1950s, FBI agents discovered an outfit run by Capone's former men operating in the Chicago underworld. On the 16th of November 1939, Capone was released from prison due to the state of his health and was referred to the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. However, they refused to take him based on his reputation, and oh, wow. so he was instead admitted to the Union Memorial Hospital for treatment of paresis, which Plus, was caused by... That would never happen in today's day and age. No matter how evil you are or whatever it is, they got to give you treatment, so that's wild. Yeah. <laughs> that was a different time in the 1930s, man. Different law and everything. Different everything, yeah. Late stage syphilis. And as a mark of his thanks, Capone donated two Japanese weeping cherry trees to the hospital. Capone left the Baltimore hospital on the 20th of March 1940 to return home to Palm Island and was lucky enough to be one of the first patients treated in America with the recently released drug penicillin. But although it was too late to cure his condition and reverse the damage to his brain, it did help to slow down the progression of the disease. During the final years, in 1946, Capone was examined by a Baltimore psychiatrist, as well as his own physician, who concluded that he had a mental age of a 12-year-old. And wow. on the 21st yeah. of January 1947, Capone suffered a stroke from which he initially started to recover before contracting bronchopneumonia. He then suffered a cardiac arrest on the 22nd of January, and on the 25th of January 1947, Al Capone died of heart failure as a result of apoplexy. He was in his home, surrounded by his loved ones. Wow. After this, a private funeral was held in Chicago a week later, and he was buried at Mount Olivet Cemetery in Chicago. But three years later, in 1950, his remains, along with the remains of his father, Gabriel, and his brother, Salvatore, were exhumed and reinterred at Mount Carmel Cemetery in Hillside, Illinois. 
Nevertheless, the terror he had spread may have stopped with his demise, but the Chicago outfit continued, with wide-ranging criminal activities such as loan sharking, gambling, prostitution, political corruption, extortion, and murder. Whilst they didn't have the monopoly on organized crime in Chicago, it was the most violent, organized, and powerful criminal mob in the Midwest, and its reach was as far as Florida and California. Even after his death, Al Capone's legend would live on. His image and characterization used to exemplify the American gangster to later generations. He became an iconic figure, and his image endures in films and publications to this day. What do you think of Al Capone? Was he a modern-day Robin Hood, giving the people a taste of what they wanted? Or was he a tax dodger, cold-blooded killer, and gangster extraordinaire, whose taste for the high life eventually killed him? Please let us know. Bam. Right. There you go, guys. Wow. And there it is, Al Capone and the Chicago Outfit Man. Uh, you guys have been requesting that one for a while. Um, but yeah, yeah. We gotta, we're going to wrap up here because uh, we got a debate coming very soon with uh, Destiny, Rolo, and Sneeko. So you guys are going to be watching this on Thursday. So don't forget to like the video, subscribe to the channel. Angie, what do you got for the people? Uh, yeah, so guys, we changed the name for the Instagram and the YouTube channel. Now it's Fed React. So follow at Fed React. Forget about Fetty.18Illumin. Now it's at Fed React, okay? For everything. Yeah, that's it. Cool. All right, guys, don't forget to like the video, subscribe to the channel. We'll catch you guys on the next episode of Fed Reacts. Peace.